All right, welcome to Footnotes with Dr. Tony Caffey. I'm Adam Castellano. With me is Pastor Tony from Verse Bevers Fellowship in San Antonio, Texas. Good to see you, Pastor. Adam, it's good to see you, my friend. And so we've been going through the book of Hebrews. Uh, this past Sunday, you went through uh, verses 4 through 14. Yeah. It was a blow-your-hair-back passage. Absolutely. Adam. Absolutely. By the way, good job reading it. Oh, that's right. I read it uh, at the service. Yeah, That's not an fun. easy task. Yeah. It can be underestimated how hard it is to just go up there and read. Yeah, just kind of, yeah. But I got home on Sunday, and Sonia was like, Adam, he's really good at reading. And I said, yeah. It's probably because you're like... You're a writer, so you have a yeah. sense for like the literary style, and you actually respect things like question marks, and you mm. want to state it as a question mark. So good job out of you. Yeah, I enjoy it. Can I just make a comment on that? I know yeah. we're going to talk about a lot of other things, but uh, there's what we're trying to do with that in our church is really allow people another access point for God's Word. So before they even open up their Bible and read it, they're having it read over them, and they're mm-hmm. listening. It's another way to engage with the scripture. And I like it, uh, too, because it comes at the end of a worship package. So mm-hmm. you still have that like worshipful mindset and then you transition to God's word. And I don't know about you, but just hearing it without mm-hmm. actually opening up my Bible yet and reading it just kind of, uh, hits me differently, you yeah. know? So you, you're kind of just hearing it. And even as you were reading, I mean, I spent all week studying that passage. And as you were reading, I was like, oh, yeah, that yeah, that's cool. <laughs> you know, it was like hitting me in a new way even. Yeah. yeah. Well, it reminds me of the Old Testament, how it, since it was meant to be read aloud, yeah. the law. And um, whenever and there these letters are read aloud when, to the, the church. when the church is gathered. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And there's a version, maybe ESV, there's a version of Revelation where it says, blessed are those who read. Yeah. It says, read aloud. Yeah. Which would have been what they'd done. Yeah. So I think that's really interesting. I haven't heard in the first century world the idea of like quietly reading inaudibly was unheard of. Like nobody did that. Right. What, you know, when you would sit down to read like we do in our devotions, mm-hmm. you would just read out loud. That's the habit. Oh, interesting. When our, our habit is, I don't know about you, but yeah. I never read out loud. No, not by myself. I have stuff read out loud, like I'll do this, like on my Trust. iPhone for articles and stuff. Yeah, it'll recite it and, and it'll read it, it. Which is actually helpful for learning, uh, retaining information. But anyway. Yeah, and Paul says faith comes by hearing the word. So it's obviously an important component um, to experiencing it. Yeah. So our, um, do you have more you want to expand on that or should we jump nah. in? Okay. So the text we looked at this week was the writer of Hebrews correcting a major error. Yeah. Before we get into it, I reflected on just the what we were doing because not every modern reader thinks of angels in this lofty way. Yeah. To the point where it rivals the importance of Christ. But I noticed it's very common in Scripture that the writer will address a problem in the moment, but then use it as an opportunity to explore bigger things. You know, Paul does this. It's a lot in the prophetic books. So that we could even read it now. And yeah, I don't have this problem. But he explores the the reality of Christ in a way that may not have been explored otherwise. Yeah. So I think that's such a... So cool. <laughs> Yeah, I, 
a way to think of that in terms of scripture is that Christ is always greater than we could ever imagine. And yeah. whatever, whatever road you take in terms of explaining the text or explaining truths of God, um, you got to get to a place where Christ is awesome. And mm-hmm. so this, this is a great, like you said, access point because people are controlled by angels. Even in our day, I mean, it's different in our day, as I talked about on Sunday, but I mean, people are enthralled by angels. All right. You want to talk about angels? Yeah. Angels are cool. Jesus is way more awesome than angels. Yeah. yeah. And it, it, that's definitely appropriate because I remember as a kid, there was some weird angel movement. There were these angel books popping up in Christian bookstores and it was getting weird yeah. and people had, you know, weird ideas about angels. So it's must be a recurring thing. Every so often people are like, angels, what about, what about angels? Write about angels. So it gets weird. Um, so we had this passage describing Jesus as a begotten son. Yeah. And you explore this idea and the error some people make thinking, oh, begotten means born. Yeah. So that must mean Jesus was born. Mm-hmm. But you you explored it from the perspective of begotten as the heir of the father. Mm-hmm. Yeah kingship metaphor uh and it, it's got to be that because in hebrews 1 1 through 4 the passage that we looked at the week prior like jesus is obviously way more than just a, a being that was born at the incarnation so how do you put that together one either one's a metaphor or the other one right i mean they can't both be literally true that jesus existed in eternity past and created the universe and also he was born as a fresh being uh, begotten. So the begotten language, especially in light of Psalm 2, and that's that's the connective tissue, right, for mm-hmm. for Hebrews. I mean, this is an enthronement psalm. This is uh, something that was probably reiterated in the ancient Israelite world again and again as everybody's waiting. Okay, okay now you're the begotten one, Solomon. Now, now it's you, you know, Rehoboam, and now it's you, Josiah, and now, you know, all down through the line. Mm-hmm. Each of them awaiting, you know, the capital M, Messiah that didn't come until after the years of captivity, you know, Roman occupation, and now we have a uh, son of God, Messiah, born in Bethlehem in the first century. So I have had, this is more of a very specific question. I'm curious about your perspective on it, because I'm sure people wonder this from time to time. When I was in college, I had a teacher who said, Jesus, technically, and I don't agree with this, this was his assertion, wasn't the son of God until the birth. Mm. But previously he was, he still was who he was, but he was the word of God, you know, based on John one and based on, I guess the fact, the old Testament Christ is there, but as either the angel of the Lord or as a representative of God, but from what you have taught uh, this week and from what the text says and from other contexts of scripture, we know Christ always was who he is. So what would your thoughts be if someone tried to make that kind of distinction? Is that accurate? Is that way off? What are, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I think it's a false dichotomy to say mm. that Jesus was the Logos of, in the Old Testament world, pre-incarnate state, and, but not the Son. Uh, there's good evidence to suggest that the sonship of Jesus is eternal. Um, and, you know, Grudem has a chapter in his book that's dedicated to Christology, this is systematic theology, which goes into that. And he defends the eternality of Christ's sonship, Mm -hmm. I think, quite, quite effectively. So, um, and I I think uh, wherever you land on that, you've, the, the important point, and whether, whether you're dealing with Jehovah's Witnesses, or you're just trying to figure out your theology in your own mind, uh, 
there the eternality of God's Son, or let's just frame it as uh, the second person of the Trinity. Hmm. Make it <laughs> make it that way. Um, you've got to have that. You've right. you've got to have that. Uh, uh, in other words, Jesus existed in eternity past. You know, the second person of the Trinity was there at creation. He existed before time began. You can't make sense of Colossians 1 without mm-hmm. that. You, you can't make sense of John 1 without yeah. that. So that's the hill to die on. And how we mm-hmm. kind of understand, there there were even differences, as I read commentators on, like when when did this enthronement ritual take place? Was it at the in, in, um, at the uh, when Jesus was born into the world? Was that the time that it took place? And I think that was Augustine's view. Mm-hmm. And then others... Uh, instead of the incarnation, that's the word I was looking for. Instead of the incarnation, they they thought of it as the ascension of Jesus. Hmm. And a lot of commentators gravitated towards that because Jesus defeated death. He rose from the grave and then he ascended. And there's that connection to uh, between ascension and what's called session, sitting at the right hand of God the Father. So now he's enthroned. Now Psalm 2 is working. Mm-hmm. And even beyond that, you know, we talked about the already not yet last time there, yeah. you know, Jesus's kingship is not, not, uh, in full yet. We still await mm-hmm. his, his, you know, ruling with the rod of iron and his second coming. So, uh, so there's some variations there, terminology and, and how we understand Christ's sonship and his, his role as king, um, when it happens, when he rules as king, the the important point. This is you know, die on a hill. Mm-hmm. You and, and I would even say even stronger than this. You can't be a Christian unless you believe this. Yeah. Is the eternality of the second person of the Trinity. Right. So that's great. Yeah. I also think about how Jesus described his own relationship with the Father, particularly in John. It, it seems like one of the, the 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 important parts of him being the son is how he relates to the father. And that might just be just one sliver of what the Bible is showing us. But he talked about, he talked to him as a father. You know, we know they're co-equal as far as their, their omnipotence and Godhead. Mm-hmm. But there seems to be that kind of relationship. Like a pre-existing relationship yeah, like, to the incarnation. Because he even said yeah. we share in this glory before the world was made. So whether he was son or the word, there was obviously this kind of relationship going on that existed even before this plan of salvation of, of creating the world ever came into a place. Yeah. Yeah. So, which is just fascinating to ponder on. And so we have, um, you mentioned the JWs and their kind of skewed view of Christ being an angel. I got a, a note from one of our other contributors, Kyle, who works on the podcast as well, that they reference certain verses and make the claim that Jesus is actually Michael, the archangel from the Old oh, Testament. Okay. Uh, specifically Daniel 12, and he mentions a couple other verses that equate Jesus being the commander of the armies of the Lord in the, the passage from Joshua. Mm-hmm. Um, and they make this very Which doesn't call claim. the commander Michael anywhere. But... Yeah, they, they make this false equivalence because Michael is mm-hmm. clearly a warrior. Yeah. So they assume, oh, it must be the same person. Mm-hmm. So what would you say to that? Yeah, this... Well, this, the JWs, just to be clear, Jehovah's Witnesses, yep. that error dates back to Arianism and uh, a false view of Christ in the third, fourth century of the early church. So right. that's, and we talked last week about how the Council of Nicaea was kind of the, the death blow to that, even though Arianism flourished for a while. Uh, 
what I sensed even studying this last week is that before Arianism, there was this Qumran community. There was uh, this Jewish community that that had a similar view of angels, elevated, mm-hmm. and and I, and that was before the incarnation and before dealing with Jesus. Although there was some community out there in the desert that continued beyond Jesus' death and resurrection. But so these these errors are really old. I heard Al Mohler say that you know all cults and all heterodoxy is just kind of reincarnations of mm-hmm. previous ones that are repackaged you know, yeah. <laughs> in a different way. So, uh, yeah, it, Michael, I think it's, I think we're better served to, because it's not clear in the Bible that Michael is a Christophany. Uh, some would argue that to just say, no, the way in which he's presented is a, an angel fighting on behalf of the Lord, a messenger of the Lord. Um, and just leave it at that. And mm-hmm. if we find out someday in eternity that Michael was a Christophany in some way in the Old Testament world, okay. Yeah. Uh, the the issue with Joshua isn't you know him being presented as an angel. The issue there really is he is worshipped. Mm-hmm. And when you combine Joshua with the book of Revelation, like how can Joshua receive worship in that moment, and then John not in Revelation? Something must had transpired there that was different than an angelic being coming before Joshua. And so that's why I hold to the view that that was a Christophany mm-hmm. and Old Testament to appear. And not the only one as well. You know, yeah. there's uh, the inference to uh, a fourth person in the fiery furnace yep. with Dan- Daniel's three friends. Yep. Um, there's there's other similar things that could probably go other way. Some people even think of Melchizedek, which we'll get to in mm. Hebrews as an Old Testament Christophany. Mm-hmm. But uh, whether he was or was not, um, I do want a category for that for the Old Testament of of some kind of... I would even say Isaiah 6 in the throne room. Is that God the Father on the throne? Right. I don't think so. because Isaiah know, we, couldn't have seen it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it would be obliterated in that moment. Was that a Christophany? Was that Christ in a pre-incarnate state? seen on the throne. Um, yeah, I think I would advocate for that because yeah. of what we talked about last week about not being able to see God in all of his glory. Yeah. And when I think about that encounter with Joshua, the figure never calls himself an angel. No, nope. He carries a very heavy yeah. authority. And yeah. Joshua says, are you for us or against us? And like, neither. I'm in charge <laughs> of the... And so it, like, it, the kind of language and, and presence that figure has is very consistent with when God appears and, and declares his, you know, authority and like, there's no question he's in charge. So I think that's consistent. Like angels don't really act that way. They even as if they're kind of humble in their glory and splendor. They're like, I'm here to, on behalf of the Lord. When the people fall down, they say, get up, don't be afraid. This guy wasn't like that. Yeah. Joshua fell down. He did not say, get up, don't be afraid. And he said, you better listen to me. So. And I like that Christophany for understanding for Joshua five too, because it it's, it's correlated more closely with Revelation 19 and 20 than it is with, you know, the Gospels. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. The commander of the Lord's army, like, here, here's this person coming for war and battle. And that's how Jesus is ultimately yep. described as a second coming. Yeah. So you reference, and it's, it's in the passage of Hebrews, when it's talking about Jesus being the son to the father, um, it, it the Hebrew writer is quoting a passage from 2 Samuel that is, I wouldn't say controversial, but very eye-opening and definitely worth exploring. It's 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7. This is a time when David is com- 
contemplating building a temple for the Lord, and the Lord mm-hmm. sends Nathan to say, I didn't ask you to build a temple. Mm-hmm. And he says, instead, I'm going to build you an enduring house. Yeah. And we often think of Solomon, who did build a temple and was David's heir. Mm-hmm. But there's interesting verses in verse 13 and 14. I'll just read real quickly. God says, he, meaning this descendant of David, shall build a house for my name. So we think of Solomon. Oh, the house, the temple. Mm-hmm. Then he says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, that's not Solomon. And then verse 14, it says, I will be a father to him. And he'll be a son to me, which is in Hebrews. But then here's the part that a lot of people mull around and try to make sense of. The iniquities talk, yeah. right? He says, yeah. when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. So clearly Christ didn't commit iniquity. But you had mentioned on Sunday that this is an inference or a nod to the atonement. Yeah, I think so. So that definitely worth something to explore today. It seems to me... Anytime God is talking about a son in the Old Testament, it seemed like the New Testament writers looked at that as at least a, a foreshadowing sure. of Christ. And that might be where we're getting it from Second Samuel, because he says, I'll be a father to him and he'll be a son to me. And looking at how the Israel considered themselves in relationship with God, they didn't necessarily personalize father-son. So the link might be personal, father-son, it must be Christ. So, but getting back to what we said, what does it mean when God said when he commits iniquity? Yeah, the son language for sure is important because uh, a lot of that is involved in David and the Psalter. And so we're talking not just about, you know, some random Israelite and their son. We're Mm -hmm. talking about the king of Israel. Yep. Uh, So uh, for that particular passage... You know, there is a near fulfillment, I think, in Solomon. And so Solomon is definitely the the son of David and a king of renown with a lot to uh, commend him. And a lot lot of scholars will talk about Jesus as being the true and better David, you know, the son Mm -hmm. of David. And then they'll link the typology of the David talk in the in the Old Testament world with Jesus. Well, I see a similar typological connection between Solomon and Jesus as well. So there's a sense in which Jesus is a true and better Solomon. And uh, so I would talk about that passage in that light. Solomon did build the temple for the Lord, but Mm -hmm. Jesus' temple is better. You know, (laughs) Solomon was a man of great wisdom and uh, authority. Jesus was better, you know, not just a better Solomon, but the embodiment of wisdom, you know, he's described as in Colossians. And so uh, I think the way, the best way to make sense of this, and this can be a little bit generic, I know, is typology. We've got to have a category for that. Uh, Some people don't like that term and they would talk of trajectories. There's a trajectory from the Old Testament world to a a true and better trajectory in the New Testament world. Hmm. Uh, To me, that just means type, anti-type. Sure. Solomon type, Christ anti-type, David type, Christ anti-type. The iniquity language is alarming because, you know, as you're looking at that, if, if it was just Solomon, you're like, oh, yeah, Solomon, <laughs> he was a sinner. Oh, and he got punished for it. But if you're seeing that as Christ, you're like, wait, Jesus had no sin. What? How do we make sense of that? And not one for one, but in the sense of typology, I, I would say, there is a sinfulness that Jesus engaged in. He became sin who knew no sin so that right. 
we might attain the righteousness of God, if I'm quoting that correctly, there's that, um, that transference as uh, we receive Christ's righteousness, he received our sin on the cross. That's a very well-established uh, theological paradigm in the New Testament that Paul references and other places reference. Um, and so I, I think that's a veiled allusion to that, mm. this, this idea that this son of yours will be uh, punished even for sin. And we know from the New Testament, the sin that was not his own. And uh, that, that's a great foreshadowing of the salvation that's made possible to us. And when you combine that, you know, uh, this son of David language with the Old Testament sacrificial system and see Jesus as the true and better bull, lamb, goat, etc., it it's really quite, um, quite marvelous the way in which, you know, Jesus takes all of this Old Testament talk, Old Testament imagery, Old Testament expectation, and voila, we've got this better than we could have ever hoped for um, Messiah in the New Testament. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely fascinating. So he quotes something that in Hebrews sounds fine, but in the original reference raises a lot of questions. Yeah. So in verse... Which time? <laughs> There's <laughs> well, seven of these. Well, let's go through. Um, verse six, he mentions a verse, let all... God's angels worship him. Right. That's a reference of Deuteronomy 32:43. But in the original text, and we're assuming he's quoting from the Septuagint perhaps, and is like slightly different, but in the text that we have from the original Hebrew, it says, let the gods mm. worship him. Yeah. So what is going on? Okay. Well, you know, fasten your safety belt, <laughs> uh, Adam, because I'm going to take you through a whirlwind of possibilities here. Okay. Um, there is what we call textual criticism, which is the discipline of discerning what the texts were, the original texts of the, the Old Testament Hebrew, New Testament Greek. And just to be clear, we don't have any of the original written documents in the New Testament, Old Testament. All of those have are lost to humanity, which D.A. Carson would say is probably good because if we had them, we, we might be tempted to worship them. Yeah. So what we have is copies of copies of copies. And uh, when you look at uh, the way in which the Bible has been preserved, there's really no no corollary in the ancient world. You know, Daniel Wallace has done a lot of work on this at DTS for the Greek manuscripts and, you know, the 99 point, you know, whatever percent correspondence. There's nothing even close to that with, mm -hmm. with uh, Socrates or Aristotle or, you know, Homer's Iliad or any of these ancient documents. So the Bible has been preserved in a beautiful way by Christians, and you might say the Holy Spirit, indwelling Christians who wanted to get it right and accurate. But there's still human error that has crept into those manuscripts, whatever that percentage is, you know, 0.05% or whatever. And some of that involves scribal editions, some of that in involves updates, um, or some, some way in which the text was changed through error as the scribe was copying it. You know, we didn't have Xerox machines back then. Mm -hmm. So the textual critic is, his job is to take these Old Testament uh, texts or New Testament texts and try to get back to what's called the Vorlage. What was the original written work of Moses in the Pentateuch or, you know, Paul in the New Testament? And that's, that's a technical discipline where you've got to sort through a lot of different factors. So, so that's going on here. 
Uh, I'm going to comp- it's more complicated in the Old Testament world, even in the New Testament world, because the Hebrew texts that we have uh, before the Dead Sea Scrolls were dated to the you know the medieval period where the Masorite, Masorites were preserving the Hebrew scriptures and passing them down. So, you know, about a thousand years old, maybe a little bit older than that in some instances. All of a sudden, we find the Dead Sea Scrolls. And that's a thousand years before the mm-hmm. MT. And so, and, and what was amazing about those finds is that there, the correlations between those two, uh, you know, bodies of text was, was amazing. I mean, not perfectly so, but they jived so beautifully. Mm-hmm. And this is an instance, Deuteronomy 32, 43, where the, the Septuagint... Uh, sorry, the Dead Sea Scrolls were are, were different than our medieval texts that you know modern day scholars were using to translate into our English Bibles, starting with Luther into German and then William Tyndale on through the line. Okay, so there's that. Mm-hmm. Let me add another complexity. There's also the Septuagint, which you mentioned, which yep. is the uh, the translation of the Old Testament Hebrew, the Hebrew Scriptures, into Greek, which Primarily, when you look at the New Testament authors' use of the Old Testament, they're going Septuagint. Matthew might be the exception to that, but for the most part, they're using Septuagint. Or they're quoting from memory in some instances, so there's not that kind of verbatim word for word. They're just trying to access their memory banks and paraphrase it. Mm -hmm. Um, So when you look at the Septuagint at Deuteronomy 32.43, it's it's a lot closer than our uh, some of the older translations. The King James, the NAS, the ESV has used more of the Dead Sea Scrolls to try to render what they're doing at Deuteronomy thirty-two forty-three. So, but even the LXX, even the Greek, is not exactly the same as what the Hebrew author says. And there's there's variations galore of the Septuagint as well with different copies. So there's a whole textual discipline, textual critical discipline of that. So what we have here with the Hebrews author is he might be quoting from an LXX source that we don't even have access to anymore. Um, Or he might be paraphrasing a Hebrew version, which is closer to the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Septuagint than what we have in our modern day Bibles that English Bibles that are translated from the MT. Um, So that's that's a possibility there. Now, let me let me complexify it even further. Uh, George Gunn. Three, who's done some work on this, uh, he talked about the possibility that he's quoting not Deuteronomy 32:43, but actually Psalm 97, verse 7. Either combining Psalm 97, verse 7, or um, let me just look that up real quick, and I'll I'll show you why there's why he says that. In Psalm 97, verse 7, there's this reference to the gods and worshiping. So all worshipers of images are put to shame who make boasts in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Mm. Verse seven there. So Gunther thinks that maybe, you know, maybe he's citing Psalm 97 verse seven, not yeah. Deuteronomy 32 verse 43, or he's combining those two mm-hmm. into uh, an idea and just speaking in generalities. You know, sometimes when Paul will quote from the Old Testament or Matthew, they'll say this is written in the prophets or this was written by Isaiah or this was written by Moses. Uh, Hebrews doesn't do that. He just says, Mm -hmm. you know, it's back in the Old Testament. You guys know this. (laughs) Um, So I think 
that's a possibility as well, that he's not citing Deuteronomy 32, 43 at all. He's citing Psalm 97, verse 7, which now I'm coming full circle to your questions with the God's language. How could that be uh, angels? Well, the Greek, the, uh, the Hebrew word for gods is Elohim. And Elohim, as a Hebrew word, is incredibly elastic. It can be used to describe the God of the universe, as it is in Genesis 1. Um, it's plural in nature. So El is singular, or L-O-I. So Elohim, so we could have a plural reference to the Godhead, Father, Son, Spirit. You know, let us make, I think that's defensible in Genesis 1. Hmm. But it, it also, Elohim can be used generically for false gods, little g gods, just like our word God uh, can be. And, and we use God pretty flexibly in English as well. I, you know, I've heard Chris Paul, I don't know if you've ever heard this, he's a basketball player. He's referred to as the point God you right. know, instead of point guard, which is just silly and dumb. <laughs> but we, we will use that word to describe, you know, maybe... Uh, tongue-in-cheek, somebody that's elevated or highly valued. Mm -hmm. Well, in the Old Testament world uh, and in the Hebrew Scriptures, there are some places where Elohim is used conceivably to describe the the divine beings of the angels Hmm. in plural or the, the, the assembly of the angels before the Lord, similar to the way in which Son of God, Son, Sons of God is used in Job. And so what could be happening, either through Deuteronomy or through that psalm passage, is that this Hebrews author, he's referring to these Elohim beings, these divine beings, as angels. And he's saying, these angels worship Yahweh, and Yahweh is Jesus. So however he gets there, and I gave you a lot of possibilities (laughs) there, we can trust that the Hebrews authors, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is writing in such a way that he references Old Testament text and says jesus is superior to the angels and in fact the angels worship jesus therefore ergo we as human beings need to put uh jesus in his proper spot and worship him so did you get all that adam i know that was quite a whirlwind there of different details writing it down as fast as i could but thankfully it's recorded so we could look back um so we just to wrap it up and there's so much more we could get into which you know time escapes us but people who wanted to learn a little more about all that text background, yeah. is there any good resources they could look up? Because some of it might be new to them. You bet. Yeah, and I, I teach a class on this for an organization called Training Leaders International. And it, we walk through the New Testament use of the Old Testament, mm. which is is very creative. You and I were yeah. talking about this earlier. Um, and sometimes you're trying to figure out, like, what hermeneutical principles are the New Testament authors using? Um and so there's a whole commentary written on this by uh, Greg Beal and D.A. Carson called a Commentary in the New Testament Use of the Old Testament. Hmm. So that's where that George Guthrie article is that I mentioned. He does the whole section on Hebrews there, which you can look at. There's a good discussion there. Uh, Greg Beal has a similar uh, shorter volume that talks about all the different ways. There's like 16 different ways that a New Testament author would use an Old Testament. Sometimes he's using it uh, uh, analogically, meaning as like a paradigm uh, for the future. Sometimes it's just kind of a, an offhanded comment that he's not really trying to capture the Old Testament context. He's just saying like, this is a truism proverbial in the Old Testament world and New Testament world that just, you know, uh, we we use in in gener- general terms, 
So he walks through that so you can access either that commentary that's helpful by Beale and Carson or just the shorter work by Greg Beale. And the commentaries, we'll get into this too, the more technical commentaries. Uh, Alan, I think it's David Allen, who did the NAC commentary, which I referenced in our first podcast. He's got an extended discussion on this, which uh, was really helpful as I was preparing to try to think through the different possibilities for what, what the Hebrews author was doing with these Old Testament texts. So, yeah. Well, great. So this has been Footnotes with Tony Caffey. I want to thank... Hey, one more thing. Oh. I, we, Casalino. So I'm just like on the way over here thinking about this. The Italians, right? So <laughs> the Italians in the first century world had this misconception of angels, conceivably. Oh yeah. And then I, I feel like I'm dogging on your ethnicity <laughs> here because then I was this last week talking about the Renaissance artists... Mm. Raphael and Michelangelo, even yeah. who are misrepresenting angels, it's so chubby little weird things, the chubby little trubic <laughs> baby monsters. Yeah. So, but I do want you to know, and I was reading an article on this this morning. There are great Italian reformers in that mm. tradition, and so you, Adam Casalino, can be <laughs> part of the corrective for the Italian mistakes in the first yes. century. 15th century, 16th century, and beyond. So yes, keep up the good work, Adam. I'll do my best. Uh, you can check out every episode at vbvf.org. Also, um, if you look up Verse by Verse Fellowship on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, you'll get this and more. I'd like to thank Pastor Tony for being here today, and we'll see you next time.